1973, a group of indigenous artists formed a collective. The press called them the Indian Group of Seven. Their goal? To raise the profile of indigenous art. It was all or nothing. We're representing all our people. And create a permanent space in galleries for indigenous artists in Canada and around the world. That was really a rock star moment for me. I'm Soleil Lunier, and this is Among Equals, the history and legacy of the professional native Indian artists, Inc. Listen wherever podcasts are heard. Art Slice is a different dive into art history. We goof around, we curse, you learn from it, but don't expect a typical lecture. You're welcome. From Welcome to Art Slice, a palatable for some <laughs> serving of art history. I'm Stephanie Duenas. We really need to change that tagline. Pa- palatable if it suits your specific taste and doesn't <laughs> anger you. I am Russell Shoemaker. Listeners, we are so, so late. So late. So late. I have not seen Russell for over a month, mm. even though we live together and he has not left the house. Okay, I felt a presence. I was here. I saw the shell of a man. I was a, I was a husk of a man, yes. Basically, chained to 12-hour Zoom calls for the last seven weeks. I'm very pale now. But, oh, you're pale now? Yeah. Okay. Pale now. Um, listeners, thank you for hanging in there and for checking in on us. Russell? Yeah. Are you going to ask me what we're going to talk about today? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I have a vague recollection of us recording something some time ago, but I guess we're finishing that. Stephanie, what are we going to finish talking about today? Today, we will finish discussing Maria Marchin's bronze sculpture, The Impossible Three from 1946, and totally unrelated. Winky face. Winky face, yes. Marcel Duchamp's Etantonne mixed media installation work from 1946 to 1966. And listeners, this one is going to be like extra not safe for work. Extra. Yeah. You may want to earmuff any little impressionables (laughs) around you. A lot of discussions of body parts thrown thrown around in this one, uh, apparently, uh, mixed in with our our usual cusses and our apparently very polarizing sense of humor. Yes. If you are easily angered by llamas, daddies, goat noises, Uh uh... Guinies or what else? Pantrymon. (laughs) Basically, Russell and I just having fun while discussing art. Then this may not be the show for you. Yeah. And that's okay. There are so many other art history podcasts to choose from. A million. So you can go save all of us a lot of disappointment and (laughs) anger and get the fuck out of here. Okay, bye. All right. All that out of the way. These two prolific artists who were the opposite of one another in almost every way crossed paths. Romantic paths. And wound up in a long, steamy affair. But what's even more interesting is the impact that these two artists had on one another. So let's just get into it because it has been a long enough wait already, listeners. As always, you can find all the images we are going to discuss on our website at artslicepod.com or some on our Instagram page at artslicepod. The images to listeners are very NSFW, okay? Unless you want to get fired, that's fine. Go ahead. Go for it. Welcome. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. If you haven't listened to our episode on Alexander Calder and Peggy G, Peggy Guggenheim, episode 13, it's happening at about the same time as this episode, so they actually, they pair nicely together. Like, like wine and whatever you pair wine with. Like wine and more wine. <laughs> I love it. All right. Let's get into it. Maria Marchins was born Maria de Lourdes Alves. We just gotta we just gotta say it. Her name, listeners, Maria Martins is mm. what it looks like on paper. Yeah. But American she's paper. From... <laughs> what? Yeah. I guess that's true. Eight and a half by eleven, baby. I guess in the None of this A two, A three, A five nonsense. <laughs> okay. In eighteen ninety four in Campania, Brazil. Mm. It's about a five hour car ride from Rio de Janeiro. I'm gonna say right now, listeners, Brazilian listeners especially, <laughs> I apologize in advance for my mispronunciations. Okay. <laughs> Campania is a cute, small town with some colonial architecture. It's known for its wine production. Mm. It doesn't really look like the Brazil that us 
um, Western, <laughs> Western Northern Hemispherists <laughs> see in the media, which is usually a coastal city with high rises. Lots of Speedos. A lot of skin, a lot of sand. It reminded me of a more tropical Tuscany, if you will. Okay, fancy over here. It is fancy. Bougie stuff over here. What? Bougie stuff over here on our world tour of Tuscany. I guess. Or you know what? Hey. Eat, pray, love over here. It can look like Napa, California also. <laughs> Maybe it's did eat, pray, little love, okay? Jeez. This sounds bougie to you is what you're saying yeah, to me. Yeah, it does. This sounds yeah. bougie. Sounds well, a little bougie. It's just as well, Maria came from a very wealthy family. So when a young Maria was like... Hey, mamai, papai, <laughs> I'd like to become a professional musician, por favor. Por favor. And they were like, si, totally. And they sent her ass off to a really bougie French school in Rio. Okay. Rio was no compañía, mm. and it's here that Maria's famous social skills started to sharpen. Mm. Okay, she was running in some elite circles now. She was destined to be here, right? She was born in a wealthy family. She's going to a really bougie school. So it just makes sense that she's running around with some really uh, high profile people. And it's in these circles where she would eventually meet her first husband, a famous literature critic, Hmm. Otavio Terquino da Souza. And I say first husband listeners because at this time in 1920s Brazil, getting a divorce was basically impossible. Hmm. They separated. They were like, we are no longer Otavio. We are... separados (laughs) separados <laughs> sorry oh separados and uh listeners we don't we don't know what to do with this we didn't know where to put it into the episode uh but we check we checked some sources and maria she she fucked mussolini the dictator all right so if you didn't catch that <laughs> listeners she had an maria affair with mussolini had an affair yeah. with Benito Mussolini. Yes, yes. Probably around the time that he was turning, he was, he's, he was taking that right turn, that hard right turn into fascism. So I don't know. Maybe she had too much Campania that night. Um, maybe she, you know, he started to glisten in the moon. We don't know. This is how elite these circles yeah. were, <laughs> okay. by First the way. First of all, she's running with Mussolini. How do you just randomly end up in the same room with a future dictator. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, gargle if you need to. Go maybe grab some wine. Gargle, ga- gargle your sweet mouth. Yeah, gar- okay. gargle your sweet mouth <laughs> with some wine. And uh, we're just going to we're just gonna leave that there. This was a very public situation. This was a major scandal in Brazil. Right. So, very dramatic. Her own mother actually testified against her in court. So, yeah. she definitely lost custody of the Ninos. Very sad. We don't know if she always had an itch to become an artist or... Maybe she just needed to get away from all of the drama in Brazil, but she is able to head to Paris. There, she learns how to sculpt. In her mid-30s, Russell, she's not in her 20s, like so many other male artists that we've discussed on Art Slice, like Kandinsky and Van Gogh. So she chooses to sculpt, right? She's not painting like Mm. those other two I just mentioned. Okay, this isn't watercolor 101. She chooses a difficult medium. Yeah, these these are difficult materials to handle. It's very physical. It can be exhausting, but it can also be very cathartic. But while she's there, she's still running with those high society folks. Okay, she hasn't learned her lesson. She just she needs to be around these people. Okay, she's, <laughs> she's got a, a bougie magnet. She's a bougie magnet. She's the crispiest of the crisp on the on the creme brulee. It's her drama and her sweet tooth coming together. Yeah, what she wants. <laughs> And it's here, though, where she meets one of the few men that could secure a divorce for her back in Brazil. Okay. Okay. Her second and last husband, Carlos Marchins, the powerful right-wing Brazilian uh, diplomat. Okay. Hello. Okay. Hello. So she's she's got a she's got a taste for those uh, rectangular shaped <laughs> bad boys of like who like to hang out on parlor. What? <laughs> you know. Ugh, okay, all right. And listeners, we don't have time to dig too deeply into this today, but the Brazilian right-wing dictatorship was not a friendly bunch of people. They came to power stoking fears of, quote, Jewish communists and eventually pulled off a coup. They did some decent things for Brazil, like nationalizing important facets of industry. Mm. But like any proto-fascist government, the decent stuff is mixed in with a lot of bad stuff. So they kept the power in the hands of the white affluent South while discriminating against folks of dark skin tone. Let me know if that sounds familiar. Wait, is that, are you talking about the U.S.? Yeah, basically, you know. (laughs) And they censored or straight up killed any leftist organizers. So we mentioned this, listeners, because it's important to know where Maria is coming from and the kind of people that she's surrounding herself with. 
While Maria was accustomed to creature comforts, right, her local crate and barrel and such, Mm -hmm. Carlos introduced a whole new level of access for Maria. Okay, she had wealth, she had health, she could travel the world and soak up all of these new experiences all by Carlos' side. So she did what any artist would do. She used this new access to fuel her artwork. She learned how to carve sculptures from raw materials like wood in Quito, Ecuador. She learned how to work with ceramics in Japan while also falling in love with the rhythms and textures of Zen gardens. Mm. In Brussels, Belgium, Maria takes lessons in bronze and marble from the famous sculptor Oscar Jespers. Mm. Oscar's work, like the Cubists of the day, was heavily influenced by African ceremonial masks and reliquary figures. And it's here where Maria likely realized that you don't just have to imitate the standards of Western art. You don't just have to do what everybody else is doing. Mm -hmm. It was not the end-all be-all of art. There was just so much more. Yeah, a lot more out there. She starts to look back at all of the diverse cultural streams that make up her homeland, right? Mm -hmm. Brazil. Traveling back and forth from Brazil with Carlos, she would often fly above the Amazon jungle. This enormous, mysterious, terrifying, and beautiful biome, right? She's just Mm. staring out the airplane window, completely mesmerized. So look, there must be some early life crisis that happens within that that little 25 to 35 year old age bracket that you got to select that just makes you want to travel across the ocean, right? Because Mm. Stephanie, 28 year old Marcel Duchamp in 1915, disappointed by his art career in Paris, France, Mm -hmm. which is in France, it's a city in France, Paris, uh, decided maybe I should avoid this whole war thing and just go check out this America I've been hearing mm, about, this mm-hmm. United States of America. So he grabs his chessboard, his fur coat, <laughs> probably a couple bicycle <laughs> wheels, a couple baguettes, Duh. and boards a passenger boat headed to New York City. New York City. New York City. But let's let's back that up, though. Okay. Let's back that up, let's okay? Go. Because when you think of the influential painters of the early 20th century, mm-hmm. you do not typically think of Mr. Duchamp, right? No. Marcel, he was actually more like Pablo Picasso or Matisse. He was making uh, very cutting edge, controversial paintings mm. like New Descending a Staircase, which scandalized American audiences <laughs> when it descended from on high from the clouds where Paris, France resides uh, to appear in a show of modern artists in New York City. New York City. New York City in 1913. So while artists like Pablo P. humanized the geometric rigidity of the budding cubist movement with softer shapes, color, patterning, and a uh, je ne sais quoi he borrowed from African ceremonial masks, Marcel was into the science of cubism. So he was intrigued by this thing called the fourth dimension. God. (laughs) You ready? Uh. An idea that time is tangible just like any other measurement. Hmm. In other words, you could interact with time much like you can walk to and from your kitchen. So in works (laughs) like Nude Descending, he showed every second, every movement, every creak of the wood while a figure walks down a staircase all at once like time was the only thing keeping you from seeing it happen all at once. That's awesome. The painting is also, it's it's kind of monochromatic and it's a bit messy, right? It's it's like a, a jumble of hard geometric shapes, soft curves, and also some like dotted movement lines. Mm. None of the glitzy colors or the dynamic compositions that you would expect to see in paintings at this time, right? Let alone even like cubist paintings. Well, and paintings at this time were meant to be looked mm-hmm. at and enjoyed, right? right? He wasn't giving you that beauty. No, yeah, they were kind of like a form of entertainment. And he he was Mm -hmm. not concerned with what he actually began to call retinal art. Okay, I like that. (laughs) He was more into capturing an idea. He wanted to make something that would would make you think about it, Mm -hmm. right? Make the gallery goer unscramble a puzzle on the wall. Right. And the public was like, uh, no, I don't want to work for it. No. And they were really feeling that lack of <laughs> retinal beauty, right? It was the first of many of Marcel's works that would make the public angry. Very angry. This is not shocking. Faces. Um, <laughs> the little monocles scrunched up in their eyeballs, leaving a little indenture. Are you sure they're not shattering by all of the angry face muscles? I know. These are, so- these are soft people, Stephanie. These are people who are, who are fed by their maids. Angry, soft people. Okay. Yeah. 
Well, these soft people with monocles, they were bitching about it, okay? There were negative reviews, okay? Mm. There were cartoon parodies. They were scandalized. Absolutely scandalized. Horrified. Like, who Who, who is is this? this? Who is this French man? Yes, exactly. Duchamp? What's a Duchamp? <laughs> you don't like you don't like my be, my beautiful America, yeah. He ain't no champion. He ain't no champion. Do cha- do cha- more like do chump. <laughs> more like do chump. Markel do chump. <laughs> I presume. Stop. Don't you step a foot on my country. Don't you step. Don't you dare. Do you, you stay. <laughs> you stay on that passenger boat. Do chump. Don't tread. Don't tread on me. Don't you tread on me. Shut the fuck up. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, oh, mas, dame mas, dame mas, dame mas, come on. Markel. <laughs> so Marcel must have loved that negative attention because he goes from painstakingly painting every movement of a person walking down a staircase to displaying an upside down urinal. <laughs> He named it Fountain. He yeah. signed it under the pseudonym Armut 1917, officially christening it as art. Because, you know, art has to have a signature. Honestly, Russell, when I learned about this in school, I was like, what a jackass. What a jackass. <laughs> what a jackass. What a do Trump. I just was confused. I'm like, really? You're going to put a urinal on display? But you know what? He was definitely onto something. Okay, He wasn't just being facetious. He was about to break the art world. This work would become the Dada poster child. Listeners, Dada is another movement in art history. Mm. It was a reaction to the conservative bourgeoisie leaders that led to the chaos of World War One, but also a rejection of art institutions and of reason and logic associated right. with high art. If this sounds familiar to you, listeners, it's because, yes, Dada was the forerunner of surrealism. Mm. So Marcel submitted Fountain anonymously to this supposedly anti-art establishment art committee that he himself had started after arriving in New York City. New York City. New York City. Their motto was, no jury, no prize, no woman, no cry. I'm just kidding. I don't know. Basically, anything goes. Okay. Right? All art, no matter how weird, is accepted. We will not judge you on the formal standards of beauty. It's It's a cool slogan. It is cool. Yeah. Um, but then, then they get this signed upside down urinal. They were like, "Fuck no, no, we're not doing this. This is not happening." <laughs> well, probably for the same reason you thought he was a jackass. They just thought someone was taking advantage of their cool slogan. They're like, "Look, we tried to be cool, right? <laughs> right? But you, this isn't even art. This is a goddamn urinal." Uh, all right, but it's actually like it's it is really clever. Yeah. It, the piece is called fountain. A fountain is something that projects liquid. Typically, you you're not supposed to add bodily liquids to the fountain. It, it's kind of a, mm. a poignant punk, clever joke Ooh. way of inviting art academies to essentially piss in his fountain. <laughs> You know, piss on his art. It is also not made by Marcel. Mm -hmm. He probably bought it uh, ready-made at a hardware store. Art was supposed to be made by an artist. Right. And listeners, Marcel is a huge figure in art history. He never stuck to one style. Mm. His ideas are far too complicated to simply sum up in a few minutes here. Mm. We will revisit this period of Marcel's work in a future episode. Yeah, but he also came back to ideas frequently, like Dimension, Mm -hmm. once again. So, (laughs) in the large glass, for example, which is not the name of the piece, I'm not going to name the piece because it's very long. He used foil, glass, drill bits, dust Mm. to kind of poke fun of the human condition. I I realize that sounds complicated. It is. But how, like, he was thinking about how humans follow orders. Mm. I mean, remember, this is like, you know, World War One, World War II time. Right. How they experience desire and frustration, all because they are confined by limits, like dimensions. And at the same time, this work frustrates you as a viewer. Viewers at this time didn't know what to yeah, do what with would this. You, I mean, this is a giant piece of glass with, like, tinfoil and shit. Like, like what the fuck am I drill, supposed to do Like, what do you this? do with that in, like, 19-whatever-it-was? <laughs> By his late 30s, he was so ahead of the art scene and he was so frustrated with the art world, mm-hmm. he just stopped making work. He's like, this, this is not for me. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, what am I going to, I'm going to go become a professional chess player. While he sunk into the background, he took on art consulting, mm. he mentored other artists and wealthy heiresses like Peggy Guggenheim, who he convinced to invest in arts. He was much more comfortable behind the scenes, cool and collected, never spending more time than what was necessary in any obligation. He wanted to dip in and dip out, right? Mm. All the while developing a reputation. He has been called mysterious, a loner, enigmatic, detached, 
secretive and my personal favorite, glacial. He does okay? look very glacial in his he photographs. He does. He's never, ever smiling. He's never looking at the camera. He's in his own Marcel world. Yeah. He's a wild card. You think you know Marcel, but no one really did. In 1939, Maria packed her bags. Well, I mean, <laughs> she she didn't. She had the help. She had pack hired her bags. help. Okay. Okay. Yes, yeah. she did. Of course, she did. Um. So her bags were packed as Carlos's diplomatic duties take them from Brussels, Belgium, to the USA, baby. Baby. They head to Washington D.C., mm. the political capital of the USA, where politicians ruin lives. Okay. Every day. Yep. Or uh, where Carlos can make uh, deals with lobbyists, uh, smoke some cigars, cigars, and, you know, shove, like, handfuls of uh, Brazilian reals and strippers' underpants. Don't, uh, don't okay. check the exchange rate on those strippers. And uh, plot <laughs> Adolf's escape to Argentina. Maria is throwing these lavish parties for Carlos's powerful friends, basically the upper crust of D.C., gross. She was all the things that a diplomat's wife should be, right? But... She was also respected as an artist, not just a politician's wife with a hobby. She is able to have a studio in the basement of the swank-ass Brazilian oh, embassy. Oh, damn, that'd be, that sounds fun. And she's getting press for all of this, too. Okay, so check out the spread of her in mm. Life magazine. Back when magazines meant something, Stephanie. Right. When they were a big deal. And this was the same magazine that Jackson Pollock would later appear on with yeah. his paintings. Um, <laughs> so she is... His, uh, his, his paintings. Yeah. It's yeah. kind of like a question mark. Uh, in brain. Right. Like, what did he make again? Um, so here she's sculpting a bust of Carlos, right? She's also in action here. a rectangular, boxy, right-wing parlor guy. I think it's the shoulder pads. You think, I think so? Yeah. Okay. Same with Mussolini. I think it's like the shoulder pads were a thing. Okay. Make him look more. So first it was right-wing dictators that wore the shoulder pads and it was grandma's. <laughs> what? Yes. We're looking at Maria sculpting a bust of Carlos in this magazine, and mm-hmm. I can't help but compare this to the way that Frida Kahlo was treated in mm-hmm. newspapers when she accompanied yeah, yeah, Diego yeah. to Detroit, right? Frida is featured here in, in like a in like a Sunday saver, no. right? The, the free one you get on Sunday with the coupons. No. no. Uh, there's about three paragraphs crammed next to probably a guy trying to sell his bottle cap collection <laughs> OBO, right? Uh, and the title says, Wife of Master Mural Painter, which is fair. Just fair. He's a master. Our big boy was a badass, Diego right? Was Diego a was a badass. badass. Yes. Gleefully dabbles in works of art. Rude. Yeah, kind of rude. Makes her sound like a Sunday painter. Yeah. And Maria's article here says, Maria, wife of Brazil envoy, which I assume is diplomat. Envoy. Yeah. Leads two lives for art and diplomacy. How noble. How noble indeed. It's hard to ignore Maria's work, right? Frida was packing all of this meaning and pain into these little retablo paintings. Which looks more like a hobby. Yeah. Right. And it's something that she could make in the hotel where she was staying with Diego, right? Mm -hmm. While he was away. You couldn't ignore Maria's large sculptures that were probably spilling out of the Brazilian embassy. (laughs) And here is this well-dressed, exotic woman because she's from Brazil, right? She's got a little accent. Exotic. Uh, right. Uh, that's all it takes. Um, <laughs> all while sculpting these works, right? Yeah. So she's taking a chisel and carving away at hard materials, working in a foundry with mostly men, pouring molten materials. <laughs> sculpture was very much a masculine medium. Yeah. And do you know about sculpture? Oh, Have you yeah. chiseled away oh, hard I materials? T- I, yeah, Stephanie, I, put, I clocked in a lot of hours in the old foundry. Okay, no. All right. And then we have beautiful Maria breaking barriers of what was expected of a woman, either as a diplomat's wife or as a female artist. So in this Life magazine photograph, we finally get a peek at the work Maria was making at this time. Mm. Very conservative, traditional, figurative work. Yeah, with a bit of chunky geometric flair. Yeah, I see uh, I see Jesus back there. So yeah. I'm thinking like some Catholic religious figures, maybe. Mm-hmm. But also, yeah. oh, Russell, okay. not pictured. She just flipped the slide, listeners. When she wants to get wild. <laughs> what? Am I shimmying? I'm shimmying. Okay. Like the samba dancer. I'm not a samba dancer. Okay, Um. so when she wants to get kind of wild, she wants to let loose. She, she wants uh, to take her top off. Okay, I just right. had an image. Uh, <laughs> I just had an image. Okay. She she sculpts some topless samba dancers. Okay. 
I have a lot of mixed feelings about this. I, I imagine feel you do. I imagine you all do. of this Catholic guilt when I see the Jesus, the saints, I suddenly smell incense in my nostrils. <laughs> but then I see a topless Samba dancer sculpture. But I mean, that makes sense, right? Like Brazil, huge, uh, yeah. huge Catholic pop, right? Yeah. Also, huge Catholic Jesus on the mountaintop. That's true. You know? That's but true. But also... A lot of sequin pasties in <laughs> yes. sexy samba parades, okay? You mean carnival? You like carnival, don't you? Anything with a lot of whistles, I love. <laughs> and Is that what that was? Yeah. That's my whistles. Where's that drum? Uh, where's that drum player? I can't do the drum. I know. No. I'm the whistle player. All righty. It's here where we first start to see Maria owning aspects of Brazilian culture, hmm. even using wood from the native jacaranda trees. Oh, fancy. Imported. Yeah. Just a few years later, Maria has had it with the swampy D.C. basement. She's yep. over it. So she takes a train up to New York City. New York City. New York City. Well, I mean, she she doesn't take Okay, she sends someone she sends, right. in her place, okay? But eventually she finds a studio space on Madison Avenue okay. with beautiful molding this and is paneling. a beautiful room. This is like <laughs> this, the bougiest studio this. you could have in New York. Are you kidding me? I cannot imagine having any sort of art making going on in this room. It's, it's gorgeous. Pristine walls. I mean, okay, so this is obviously quite a few years later, listeners. She's smiling here. She's surrounded by all this beautiful work. Uh, but you look really closely. Looks like there's a framed photograph of Marcel Duchamp behind her face. Wait, what? Look in there. Zoom in. <laughs> Oh my god, what? Is that Marcel? <laughs> oh my god, yes. I think that's Marcel. That's Marcel. Okay. What a dramatic photograph. Okay, she caught him. This is for you, Maria. Okay. But the work here... <laughs> He's right above her head. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it's very distracting now. But nothing like the work we've seen so far, right? She's leaving behind those wooden Jesuses and the topless Samba girls, right? This is a future Maria. She is on the verge of just letting loose. It's here where she would explore the darker side of her psyche, something you would never expect from a politician's wife. It's not long after Maria settles into her beautiful studio that the Surrealists, the Cubists, the Parisian artists fleeing the war dock in New York City. New York City. New York City. And we, so we got your Andre Bertons. We got your Eve Tongues. We got your Pablos. We got, uh, we got your, all, all the European migrants fleeing Hitler, Franco, Mussolini, a little bit awkward. <laughs> I like to think that, you know, Max Ernst runs into Marcel at a bagel shop and it just opens his arms wide for a hug <laughs> and they're both wearing the same fur coat. <laughs> and Marcel just takes a big schmeary bite of his bagel and he just dead eye looks off into the, <laughs> like he does in his photographs, like off into the, the uh, a different Somewhere direction. Yeah. Okay. Like staring off into space and pretends like he doesn't see him. And that hurts Max. Yeah, well, he's got, you know, he's a glacier. In 1942, they all start to hang out at Peggy's newly opened Art of the Century Gallery. And eventually, Maria uses those social skills and finds her way into this community of these weirdo, displaced artists. It just so happened that Maria's first exhibition opened the same year at the Valentine Gallery. The show was a mixture of her more modest Catholic sculptures and the sensual samba dancers. Mm. But there was something weirder starting to show in her new figurative works. Okay. Forms were starting to bend in unnatural ways. The figures were owning their sexuality and their carnal desires. Yeah, they weren't these passive, topless ladies mm -hmm. anymore, right? right? They were they were owning it. Right. I, I want to do this. This is for me. Right. A year later, in her second show at the Valentine Gallery, her work gets next level balls to the walls weird. Or, <laughs> in this case, nips to the vines weird. <laughs> That sounds painful. We gotta so, turn this into a video show because you like the motions you make. Never mind, listeners. Yeah, don't, I don't even know mind. how to describe um, this. There's a shift to horny, pun intended, monster-like <laughs> goddesses that resemble hybrid plant human forms. Mm. Okay. They're both appealing and grotesque. So you feel like you shouldn't be looking at them, but mm -hmm. you want to keep looking at yeah. them. And you're like, what is this? Yeah. I mean, they almost look like a claymation movie you would find on the sci-fi channel at, at 2 a.m., <laughs> but it's, it's it's bronze. Right. And you're no, okay. just, just give it a minute. 
It's bronze. And technically speaking, being able to go from like a crudely cut wood to this level of technical detail in only a year is really impressive. So their bodies are morphing. They're like in mid-morph, right? We have mm-hmm. snake vulva lady here with a bunch of lips growing on their legs, right? Right. And we have a vine goddess with tubular nipples that are that almost look phallic, right? Yes. And then arms that are like bending dense. like snakes. Like there's no more Jesuses, okay? No. This is this is a far departure from the Jesuses. Samba ladies have evolved. I mean, they're really interesting. They're they're also a little bit messy mm-hmm. and they almost feel like maybe, you know, she's in a transitional period. It doesn't always look intentional. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's why it feels a little messy. She was able to achieve this effect in bronze because because she's using the lost wax technique. Oh, okay, well, they're here. All right. I think it's probably time. It's time. Let's go. All right. Uh, let's go to the art size pantry. Vamanos. Bronze first popped up around 4500 BCE, typically as a much needed durable tool, a Bronze Age upgrade from your Stone Age axe in Animal Crossing. People began to notice molten lava-like substance bleeding from stones in their fire pits, which eventually cooled into what we now know as metal. Ancient cultures from Africa to China figured out how to harness this metal. Everything from ceremonial jewelry, chariot bling, furniture, armor, weapons, and even art. The oldest of which is Dancing Girl, a small sculpture from the Indus Valley, shows an elongated and very confident lady wearing loads of bangles and necklaces, dating all the way back to 2500 BCE. Making a bronze sculpture today is incredibly complex. It requires a team of people, tools, a lot of time, and most importantly, resources, or at least money to get the resources, which is one of the reasons why there are so many bronze sculptures left over from Maria Marchines and so few from Augusta Savage. To cast a sculpture in bronze, first an artist would craft a sculpture from materials like clay, then a mold would be created around that clay sculpture, and after the mold dries and the initial sculpture is removed, channels are added for pouring and most importantly, offsetting gases. The mixtures of metal are then heated until they literally look like molten lava, and a team of people will then pour them into the mold. As the bronze cools, it shrinks a little, which makes it a little bit easier to separate from that mold. Then the artist will remove all the imperfections left in the bronze. Metal workers back in the Bronze Age were happy to use whatever material they could find, right? including poisonous combinations of metal. But today, what we know of as bronze is usually a very durable mixture of copper and tin. If you've ruined someone's life by putting their cast iron pan in a dishwasher that said person took years to build a beautiful patina on, you know what corrosion looks like, which if done correctly, bronze is incredibly resistant to unlike my cast iron pan. That is why we have so many well-preserved examples of its use from ancient civilizations. So if you want to cast in bronze, you're going to need a lot of experience. You're going to need a foundry. You're going to need a a team of people or friends. And most importantly, you're going to need those resources to make it happen. But it all starts by sculpting with very inexpensive and accessible materials first. So don't let that stop you. Stephanie, our little Ponchamon babies... Hungry They're very hungry and sad. Okay, They're still, you know, I think they're getting over it, right? Yeah. Bean sent a little postcard <laughs> with their little paw prints on it. Okay. You know. Yeah. So we're, we're chipper. They got their their appetite back. Let's get back to it. So the works that she made for the show are these hybrid female sculptures that were partially inspired by the Tupi, Guarani, and other indigenous folklore of mythical Amazonian creatures that would sometimes literally lure and kill. So, André Breton, Max Ernst, Yves Tanguy, and Marcel Duchamp were all in attendance, mm. and they loved her works. I bet they did. The primal, carnal desire expressed through this weird, coded, unconscious... Like lips on legs, like very surrealist, Very right? much so. Very much up their alley. Right. So much so that André Breton waved his little plastic surrealist wand <laughs> over Maria and gave her that coveted surrealist blessing. Maria, we will we will mail you uh, the surrealist contract. Luckily, luckily, I just kicked Renee Magritte out. So Aww. we have an opening. Okay, another story for another time. It's a late autumn evening in New York City. The light is waning. Headlights from passing traffic in the skyline horizon embellish Maria's black halo of hair as she and Marcel sit on Peggy Guggenheim's apartment terrace, the sun setting, turning the cold sky a soft coral. City sounds from below float up onto the terrace, buzzing with the loud dinner party they had left behind. 
both silently examining the aesthetics of Peggy's dying terrace plants, Maria smiled at Marcel as she raised her hand and took a drag from the cigarette between her fingers. Through the veiling smoke of her exhale, she met his gaze, his silhouette fading as the night enveloped them. It was through numerous glances across the room and casual conversations that Maria realized that the glacial Marcel had a completely unique perspective on life, on art, etc. Yeah, she's in the boat circling the glacier. <laughs> she's like, what's underneath? What's underneath that face, that, that rigid? That's hilarious. Man, those cheekbones. Yeah. Those cheekbones. Yeah. Okay. They I look like something got, got cut off, fell off. That cleavage, though. The cleavage, the, yeah. The that's iceberg <laughs> cleavage. That's the word I was thinking of, the cleavage. <laughs> You know what I like, Stephanie? I like yeah. Marcel Duchamp's face cleavage. It's beautiful. <laughs> all right. Yeah. All right. Let's remember, though. Can't stop from myself from looking at it. Sorry. Go on. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's remember, though, that Marcel was so astute that the bits and pieces of feedback that he mentioned in passing challenged Maria in a way that the praise from Andre Breton and the Surrealists never would. They were opposites in every way. In class, in temperaments, in ideology, in geography. But when Maria said, hey, Marcel, why don't you stop by my Madison Avenue mansion studio? He was just as intrigued. And why wouldn't he be? If you look back at the photo of her in her studio. Try to ignore Marcel's picture behind her. Please do. His eyes. It's hard. I can't can't see anything else now. Maria is surrounded by all of her weird, tentacly figure sculptures. She's laughing. She's smoking a ciggy. <laughs> she's confident. And she seems right at home. So, of course, he said, Wee oui, wee, oui, Maria. One studio visit turned into another and another. They bounced ideas off of each other. And slowly, ever so slowly, the glacial Marcel began to sweat. When studio visits turned into, why don't you come over to my Park Avenue hotel apartment later? Winky face. Yes. We we needed the, I was going to say, duh, but no, we needed the winky face. Whatever the risk, and there were plenty, she embraced her feelings full force. She was like, fuck it, Marcel. You light my fuego. Mm. Let me melt that glacier damn seriously yeah it must be a little hot in here a little caliente yeah so it was around this time that you can see something really change in maria's work it was no longer just for the eyes it was becoming a mirror of her psyche instead of representations of amazon mythology she starts to show movement Mm. and metamorphosis through the tentacly vines from her previous work right but now the vines are the work (laughs) And yeah. They're animated. They they tangle. They reach for things that aren't there. And, and we see our reflection in these forms because they feel very human. Right. And it's the gestures of these creepy, cute, vine hybrid creatures that we empathize with. Some of them look like they're cold. They're curling up for warmth. Other times they're feeling saucy. <laughs> Other times there's just a darkness to them. Maria describes them as having, quote, the cruelty of a monster and the sweetness of a wild fruit, hmm. end quote. Once you get past the fact that they're bronze sculptures, you look at what they're doing, right? They're expressing yeah. human emotions. It's easy to empathize with them because we've all been these monsters, right? Uh, we all know what reaching and rejection feels like, and that's that's really captivating. Right. Maria's works were self-portraits in a way. They perfectly encompassed her complicated identity. Like these vines, she was in constant flux from one life to the other. All of these conflicting feelings show up in her most famous work, the piece we are going to talk about today, The Impossible Three, which we think shows all of the struggle, change, joy, and tension she was experiencing during these years. So let's get into it. Impossible 3. This is Maria's most well-known work. There are several versions of this in varying sizes and color. We are going to focus on the version we've seen, which is about 32 inches by 32 inches. So not small, but not large. And it's in bronze. It's the color of bronze. (laughs) A couple other versions that we actually really like a lot will include with our images. One is a lithograph. So it's Two-dimensional. It flattens the shape in a really interesting Mm -hmm. way. It's worth checking out. Um, There's also a large white version, which has some really incredible cast shadows. Mm -hmm. Right off the bat, this is not a passive sculpture. Right. It is not a static hunk of metal just taking up space. We have two Venus flytrap-looking humanoids caught facing one another. Their faces are giant traps with long tentacle-like bristles. But the two forms are actually connected. It's almost like they're sharing the same root bulb. 
And we get a sense that we're about to watch them either embrace mm-hmm. or start to fight. <laughs> and there's this really beautiful curve to the body's forms until it stops. And the curve turns into this like whiplash like form. Both bodies are vaguely human. One is shorter and stouter. The second form is taller and slimmer and has breasts, nip, <laughs> nips and all. Nips and, and- <laughs> There is a tentacle penis uh, sitting between the slim figure's thighs. Right. And most of the time, the tentacle penis is omitted from the images you will find online. Interessante. And so, <laughs> and they're try- so these forms are trying to embrace one another, right? They're, t- they're, t- they're trying to get a little smooch, all right? <laughs> but they have those Venus flytrap faces. They don't have eyes. Yeah. They don't have noses. They don't have ears. So really, that's the only way they can sense is using those elongated tentacles or bristles or whatever you want to call them. They're fumbling in the dark and these two desperately want to connect, but they just they feel like they just keep missing one another. And it's it's really frustrating. It's, it creates all this tension mm-hmm. in the static object. It's yearning. It feels right. personal. When you really look at the tentacles, they look dangerous. Yeah. But they're the most fragile part of this creature. The slimmer, taller form is both reaching for the larger one, but it's also partially jerking right. away from it, which is where you get that whiplash. It's really unsettling and an already unsettling work. Right. I mean, I see it as apprehension, being careful not to give yourself fully to someone. Okay. Especially if that someone is a carnivorous plant like yourself. <laughs> and, plan. <laughs> and maybe that is why she chose the Venus flytraps, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they both want to consume the other one, but the one that is partially jerking away may be coming aware of the consequences of giving in to that. When Venus flytraps sends something near, they snap shut quickly. Yeah. But... If there isn't anything actually there, it takes hours for them to open back up. (laughs) So I can imagine these two just constantly teasing each other when there is actually nothing there. Just sensing the bristles nearby. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So some other things like scale and texture can really alter your read of Maria's sculptures. In The Impossible 3, the texture is smooth, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a little bit pebbled, which gives it a skin-like, but also kind of an oh. earthy texture. Mm-hmm. But imagine if this was a snake-like texture. We would read this oh, completely right. differently. Totally. And we wouldn't empathize with them like we do. And size, this one is smallish. Right. It's on the cute side of terrifying. <laughs> um, I feel like I could hit it with a bat if I saw <laughs> it and it would be fine. Uh, but there are larger versions that, no, I'm, I'm running away from those. Yeah. I'm amazed by how Maria is able to capture the complexities of human emotion with simple gestures mm-hmm. in bronze, mind you. That's right. so difficult because you could easily write these off as 60s looking like, <laughs> like movie monsters, <laughs> yeah. you know, like the blob or some shit. But instead, you find yourself relating to them. Well, Maria is straightforward, right? She's not hiding much, okay? She's got her nipples out, emotions out, right? (laughs) Well, because of her relationship with Marcel, though, it's hard to not view it as a visual metaphor for this time in her life. Exactly. She was pulled between her commitment to her family and Carlos, the comfort that they offered, and her desire for Marcel. I like to think of Maria and Marcel's relationship all playing out within that hotel apartment on Park Avenue. It was like an impossible little world, a little greenhouse for these for these Aww. Venus flytraps, right? <laughs> yeah. For a love that couldn't survive the climate outside. It was the space that was completely borrowed that was for a borrowed time. Maria probably knew it was inevitable. That moment in the impossible when the figure is reaching for, but also pulling away. She's being careful not to give away all of herself to Marcel. The whole time they could both feel the inevitable ending edging closer and closer. What they had built began to slip away when Carlos was reassigned to Paris. At first, this was an obstacle Marcel could handle. He was from Paris, right? They could meet there. But then, Carlos finally retires, and he and Maria move back to Brazil. The truth was, Maria wasn't going to leave Carlos. She was born wealthy and had always surrounded herself with affluent, powerful people, and Marcel was neither one of those things. Their story ends in heartbreak, but their relationship would come to be immortalized in art history. Your voice on the telephone was very distorted, very deep, and I was left in a state of great distress afterward. The physical contact of a voice is so strong, so much a presence. We do not see each other enough to get used to it, with the result that all the good times I relive in memory are far too brief and evanescent. Our formula for love on the wing is too sorrowful. My distress is an echo of yours, I have felt it so keenly. And I really do not I know any like what I can do to hear in the studio. Again. This solitude is, in fact, just a way of re-entering my own individuality. 
and it gives me an illusion of freedom inside four walls. But there is room enough for two. If you there is no ersatz love. It does not exist. And by not making love, we feel disgust, and there is no way out. I started to dream about number 471 Park Avenue, as that is where we had our best times. And to relive them will be joy redoubled. We are still a long way off from the secular convent we had dreamed for ourselves. I am more and more convinced that our situation is hopeless. I do not want to ruin your life. Marcel, who at first had slowly warmed up to her, was now fully in love and completely devastated. I am happy when I think of you. So, Marcel eventually does move on, but that time with Maria left a lasting impression on him. Marcel, for being cast as a man who is detached, who is a glacier, uh, he was incredibly <laughs> loyal to his friends and exes, including mm-hmm. Maria, even after he married his wife, Tini. This is all happening while Marcel is starting to get the attention that his work deserved decades ago, mm. creating a domino effect that completely changed the course of art history. The OG daddy. <laughs> Right. So much so that museums that wouldn't have given him the time of day start to court him for a permanent collection of his work. Eventually, the Philadelphia Museum of Art wins with the stipulation that Marcel would have oversight on how the work was curated within the collection. He made them install a glass window (laughs) where there wasn't a glass window before. So that you could clearly see the sculpture garden outside. Oh, winky face, winky face. Winky face, indeedo. Indeedo. Marcel passes away at the ripe age of 81 in 1968 on October he, 2nd. He sets off for that uh, that chessboard in the sky. <laughs> and it's probably on October 3rd. The docents, the curators, the unpaid interns of the PMA rub their sleepy little eyes and wake <laughs> Because they, you know, they live in the museum. Wake to Bobby Fisher pulling a giant wooden Trojan pawn on like a, on a, on a red wagon. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And he, you know, he just pulls out a folding table and two folding chairs (laughs) and he just sets up shop there waiting for a challenger. The prize, Stephanie, Marcel Duchamp's final artwork. Yeah. What? Marcel's final artwork, which he had been making for the past 20 years in total secrecy. That's the glacial pace, Stephanie. That is Marcel. If you look away, it moves. You don't know, <laughs> but it's moving. He began this in 1946 when his relationship with Maria was in full bloom. So let's get into Given. Number one, the waterfall. Number two, the illuminating gas. Also known famously as Etant Donné. Mixed media installation, 1946 1966. This was shocking because apart from the one-off pieces here and there, everyone thought that Marcel was done making artwork, Mm. okay? And that he was only playing chess, right? That he had retired because he told everyone that he had retired, but he hadn't. Mm. Maria got him off his chess playing ass, okay? (laughs) Ass. Ass. In typical Marcel fashion, just when you thought you knew him and his work, this piece was the total opposite of everything Marcel had become known for. He zigs when you zag, all right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Russell, you Stephanie. Have, <laughs> you've been here, right? Yeah, I have you've been seen it on it. I have. I sadly have not yet. Do you want to describe to the listeners your experience? So you approach this old weathered farm door. Door, if you if you want to call it a door, it looks more like thin pieces of thirsty wood nailed together. <laughs> There's this sandy brick doorway, which kind of looks like a segment of an old French country home. Mm. And it's separate from the rest of the gallery in its own small room that's very dimly lit so that you notice that there are bits of light coming from the door. And eventually, if you are observant enough, you find two peepholes. <laughs> And already there's this contrast, right? Because this is a door, like I said, it's a thirsty old door of wood. You don't want to put your face next to it. Splinter City. Splinter Town, USA, baby. Uh, (laughs) But the light coming from those peepholes makes you want to look at what is going on there. Right. 
Inside, you only see what's happening in bits and pieces. And actually, it kind of looks like it's a flat 2D painting Mm -hmm. or photograph. But eventually, your eyes adjust and you realize it's a life-size diorama. Hmm. And there's this sculpture of a nude woman lying on her back. No other way of putting this. (laughs) She's spread eagle, right? (laughs) She's spread eagle. I mean, the the phrase is gross. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And her face is beyond our viewpoint or completely omitted. We see her arm outstretched where she is holding a gas lamp in the air. Which reminds me of votive candles. Like you would light them to pray for someone. This is a Catholic thing? It's a Catholic thing, yes. Behind her, there is this... Thomas Kincaid-like background, like cheesy cliche cottages in the woods kind of thing. Yeah, it's very artificial. It's not going to fool you into thinking it's real. Definitely not. It looks like the set (laughs) of a natural history museum. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. And the the Thomas Kincaid landscape, that (laughs) TKL, it looks like it's turning fall in there. So there are dead leaves and there is this waterfall that's that's actually moving in this very cheesy, mechanized kind of way. (laughs) Um, From what we're looking at, we're supposed to get a sense of like sexy chilling. Yeah. Right. Because the woman here, her legs are spread wide and there's just a lot, though, that is really off about it. <laughs> um, Her arm is slender, but it's misshapen. Mm. And then her vagina is also not where it's supposed to be. Yep. It's kind of like like when you're making eggs and the egg yolk just kind of <laughs> slides off the center. It's like her <laughs> her vagina got away from her kind of thing. <laughs> like, whoops, there it goes. Kind of just ran away from spot. Anyway, she is laying on a blanket, not on some hay, but on dried, thick grasses. And man, those twigs and leaves must be poking in places that would just not be sexy. That's not, that's not the ki- that's not the kind of poke you want. Really? <laughs> sorry, sorry, folks. You've been a great you've been a great audience. I'll see I'll see myself out. Fuera. Tip your wait. Tip your waiters. Fuera. Fuera. There's just so much vague. (laughs) (laughs) You just got booed off the show. I love it. Okay. All right. So there's just so much vagueness here, right? Marcel was always vague about his work, but this work is more confusing than ever. It looks unlike any other work that he made in the past. He gave no hints as to what this meant. And he didn't want it shown until after he died. I mean, this feels like it should (laughs) be a joke. In a lot of Marcel's work, there is humor that is there to frustrate you and to make you think. And Stephanie's rolling her eyes right now. I'm rolling my eyes. God, he's so extra. But the joke, I think, is frustration. Right. So let's finally talk about the title. It translates to, in English, given. Number one, waterfall. Number two, illuminating gas. So when we refer to it as étantonné, that literally is only the given part because no way in hell am I going to try and pronounce the rest of that. Okay. (laughs) So anyway, first, I think gas flames and water don't mix well. But then the given part of the title, it says given, but this peephole only gives you so much. And to me, having only seen the YouTube videos, (laughs) it's frustrating. It is frustrating. It's frustrating because I want a panorama. I don't want a snippet. But honestly, in life, you were only ever given snippets. Is this uh, is this where the big reveal goes? Yes. The big reveal listeners, Maria Marchines, was the cast model for the torso, apart from the arm. Marcel's future <laughs> wife, Tini, helped him finish the work, volunteering her arm to be cast when the original broke off. <laughs> she took a teeny little hacksaw to it in the middle of the night. <laughs> I thought she took a blowtorch to it. Yeah, that's a, <laughs> teeny, it a melt, teeny one, though. Melt right off. Yeah. A teeny one. Yeah. Yes, teeny tiny. Oh, they're not small. They just have her name written on them, teeny. <laughs> in blood. Yeah. Teeny. Exactly. <laughs> Okay. All right. So Maria's presence adds layers of meaning because they were only able to enjoy a snippet of their lives together in that Park Avenue hotel room, Mm. which colors the work in a certain light now. It's tempting to think of it all as an ode to Maria. Right. It's as if Marcel was working on it for 20 years as a small daily ritual to her. I think that's one part of the equation, but I I have crazy theories, Steph, okay? Okay. (laughs) And they must be heard. I I think the quirks (laughs) of this piece are too obvious to ignore. It's clearly staged. Mm -hmm. It's idyllic in a postcard kind of way. Yeah. Except for the weird nude woman with the egg uh, yolk. uh. (laughs) So I, I go to nostalgia. Memories as they age become faulty. They are tied to that specific time that you no longer have access to. So it sits there on a pedestal in your mind, kind of like his time with Maria. But then there's that word 
time, which triggers my Marcel Duchamp fuckery alarm bells <laughs> because we all know he yeah. was into the fourth dimension all the way back God. to new descending a staircase. All right. Hang with me. Hang with me, please. All right. When you use the people, Stephanie, you're blocked okay. from seeing it fully as a 3D object. It's tempting mm-hmm. to think of it as a 2D painting, like we said, until you see that little mechanized waterfall moving in the background uh-huh. and your eyes adjust. Then you you experience this. You're like, what the fuck was this? Why did I look at this? <laughs> and, and you walk out of that room and you see the large glass. Okay. The last official work he made. The last official work that he made. <laughs> Ultimately, it's a joke about lovemaking, but also it's about dimension and physics and the frustration of missed opportunities. The lovers live in this flat world and can only see things from a certain vantage point. Mm. They can't see the path it would take to get to one another. But now you, the viewer, are the lovers and you're still physically blocked by a door with peepholes flattening the experience. So Maria and Marcel, they just, they ran out of time. Mm -hmm. So he was left with something that he could only look back on. You know, in the fourth dimension, supposedly time was maybe a little less finite. Mm -hmm. He he could stay in that hotel room with Maria a little longer. The distance between them wouldn't be so insurmountable. And I mean distance in in time distance too, not just in spatial distance. Right, right. And here's the real heartbreaker, listeners. That glass window (gasps) that overlooked the sculpture garden (laughs) that Marcel insisted on having them install. It perfectly aligns with the large glass next to Etantone, which overlooked Yara, a Maria Marchin's sculpture, mm. which, remember, he was being courted by many museums and he chose Philadelphia. So he knew. I can't even. <laughs> I mean, we, so we're bound by the dimensions we live in. And, and I think that's something that he wanted to make sure we all felt. Something that only like a 78 year old person with years of life experience could could speak to. Years of fuckery experience. Yeah. <laughs> it, well, yeah, it's fuckery, right? It's a fucking poignant but heartbreaking joke. Yeah, yeah. And the sculpture Yara, though, has since been moved. And the angry ghost of Marcel Duchamp haunts the streets of Philadelphia and especially <laughs> okay. the Philadelphia Museum of Art. For Maria, her connection to Duchamp and the Surrealists made her famous in the Western art world, but she was kind of reviled back at home in Brazil for her connections to... Mussolini? No. Um, the the right-wing dictator... Cabana boy. What? Cabana boy. Cabana, no. They're, they're, you know... No. Vargas, okay. <laughs> and her work being so sexually charged did her no favors, and it didn't help that modern art in Brazil at this time was dominated by geometric abstraction. She was ahead of her time, especially in Brazil. But eventually, she uses her power and privilege for good by giving a platform to generations of Brazilian artists by helping start the Sao Paulo Biennial in 1951. This absolutely helped put Brazil on the international art scene. Thanks, Maria. And of course, in bougie Maria style, she uh, eventually hunkered down in a bomb-ass mansion studio in the mountains about an hour outside of Rio and just kept making work until she passed away in 1973. For a myriad of reasons, Maria and Marcel were not meant to be together. We don't have Maria's correspondence to Marcel, but through his letters, we get a sense that she felt conflicted, though she seemed confident that she would have another shot at life. Quote, It's difficult to believe that one doesn't return after death. It would be tragically inhumane not to return. But I would like to return in a different condition, either as a rock, an animal, or a flower. And who said it won't be like that? End quote. Stephanie, we're here. We're at the Art Slice Museum on top of the Art Slice Hilltop. No, no, no. I want to do it. Uh, My turn. Let me try. Let me try. What? Let me try. You're going to take this from me. We are at the Art Slice Museum. This is my part. On top of the Art Slice Hilltop, surrounded by the Candom and Condi moat. Candom and Condi. Yeah. Is that what I said? Candom and Condi? Yeah. I said Candom. No, yeah. Keep going. (laughs) Keep going. You're doing a good job. Love you. Keep going. On um, the shores of La Art Slice City. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. No, keep going. Please. La Isla no. de Art Slice, yeah. okay? In mm-hmm. a parallel universe, a better universe. To uh, to get here, we had to make our way through a maze of viney bronze creatures, oh. twisting and turning, almost sambaing out of their <laughs> tentacle reach. Okay. We had to trudge our way through dead leaves, vaginas, and thickets, avoiding oh, okay. disembodied vaginas. <laughs> 
yeah we had to shrug our way through dead leaves and thickets and disembodied disembodied vaginas and naked ladies as well anyway we're here to decide (laughs) if these two works themselves seemingly from parallel universes are going in the art slice museum i'll start thank you here i go okay go ahead (laughs) maria's work The Impossible Three is out in the open. It's a sculpture. It takes up space. This piece has been reproduced multiple times by her. That's the three. Correcto. (laughs) Marcel's, however, is... It's hidden. It's secretive, right? Yeah, it's in a little corner of the gallery. And it was his last piece that took him 20 years to make. Right. That's a long-ass time. It's too long, I think. Uh, <laughs> right. Well, so it's definitely one of a kind, and while I think that Etantanez is an interesting and, like, a mind-fucking work, I don't really like the anonymity mm. when it comes to the woman's torso. Yeah, it's uh, it's weird, right? Well, it makes me uncomfortable. Yeah. I can't see her face. All we get is this fragmented, lonely muse through the gaze of Marcel. It just looks so violent. Yeah. As much as I want to feel that frustration of not being able to reach her, I am so bored. I'm bored because it's only that. Uh, what, what if... Oh, God, no. What uh, What if it's a reference to Corbet's origin of the world, though? Huh? Uh, uh, get out. Yeah, I know, right? Dude, probably. Because it okay. looks just like it. So, All right, listeners, yeah. you probably all know origin of the world. It's a painting, a close-up of a woman's nether regions. Yeah, and she's <laughs> cropped like, like a tante, but with a, with a blanket. Marcel has a quote where he specifically ties Corbet to the beginning of retinal art. When art lost its meaning and it just became for the eyes. And then there's this Corbet like figure with two two fucking peoples. Where you put your eyeballs. Yeah. He made it during the heyday of abstract art. The most retinal of the retinal art. I can't. I can't anymore. All right. I'm done. Okay. We might be giving him too much credit or not enough credit. I just never know where I stand with Marcel. That's the problem, right? But the point is, I mean, it's not it's not clear. I, I don't think I need things to be answerable, like set in stone. I think that could be boring for a work. But this piece does kind of let me down in that it's, it's either so cryptic yeah. that it's beyond accessibility or that it's so simple and cliche. It just ruins what could be a really interesting piece. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Well said. But I, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I think sometimes you get caught up in your own brand, you know? Yeah. Like, Marcel is buying into his own bullshit. He's pumping himself up. He's listening to, like, music on his headphones, you know? He's like, Marcel, but guess I'm who's back? Just, I'm the just Marcel's man. back. Yeah. <laughs> Any artist can do that if they're not careful. You, you have to have confidence in yourself, yes, but you also kind of have to check yourself. So I was going to say, someone's got to be there yeah. to check you. So, I agree. Not the Marcel piece I, I would choose for the Art Slice Museum. Okay. On the Art Slice Hilltop. Surrounded by the, the candy and condom mode on the shores of La Isla de Art Slice. So, on to Maria Marchines. Maria Marchines. Maria Marchines. <laughs> it's just fun to say. Marchines. It's okay. fun to say. So, we need to address this. Yep. She was not the Art Slice hero that we really wanted her to be when we found her work. <laughs> yeah, we were really hoping, but she turned out to be an Art Slice anti-hero. But, at the same time nobody was doing what she was doing. Her work is bold. It's sexual. Mm -hmm. And she does something that is really difficult for the medium of sculpture, which I love, which is making something that is heavy and hard feel fluid and feel bodily. And she's doing this in the 1940s, 50s. Louise Bourgeois and Kiki Smith would make similar work decades later, like in the 90s. Maria accomplishes what Marcel doesn't. What really changes things for me in The Impossible, the figure's identities are also indistinct, but she has both lovers on an equal plane, which to me says she saw them as equals. Yeah. Both figures are in action. They are not passive. Both pieces are about frustration. But in Maria's case, it's a tango, not a gaze. (laughs) I'm just shaking. I'm not I don't know how to tango. Sorry. So both pieces are about trying to connect and communicate under impossible circumstances. Maria shows us that and Marcel just hides it under a puzzle. Yeah. Which, I mean, can be rewarding, but sometimes it's just fucking fine to show it. it. Just show it. it. The experience interacting with Aton Donais, it's interesting. But viscerally, I feel Maria's work. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's, it's all in, in just that little gesture of pulling away, but also reaching towards. It's so human. It's so universal. Mm-hmm. And I relate to it immediately. Agreed. I don't need to step through like a fucking splintery door to get there. We don't know what we want as humans. Can't ever make up our minds. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so she she was never given her full dues, right? Brazil has really come to love her work. But here, 
She is always in Marcel's shadow. She's going to have her day in the West mm-hmm. eventually, I think. Just like Remedio Svaro and Lenora Carrington are finally starting to catch on. So? So yes. what? Yes to this Is piece. it going in the Arts Ice Museum? Yes to the dress. On top of the Arts Ice Hilltop? Yes. Drawn by the Canadian Economy Moat? Yeah, I think so. Yes. I think, I think. Uh, <laughs> what? Uh, oh, oh. <sighs> what is this? Listeners, this has been a long discussion in our household oh, no. because we plan these episodes months in advance. Um, I wanted to do Night Chant. Uh, Night Chant was, it was ironically her last piece, just like Atantone mm-hmm. is Marcel's last piece. It's beautiful. The tension we described is on full display in this piece. But yes, I will take the impossible as a consolation prize. All right. For Night Chant. Okay. I'm going to ask you a question. Sure. And you're not going to cut this. Okay. Um, do you think Night Chant kicks Atantone's ass? As a final piece? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? It's, it's gorgeous. Killer. Yeah, we'll Killer. include, uh, we actually found links of it photographed in, what it, it's like a Brazilian It's like a mod, yeah, uh, but it's gorgeous. It's, it's a, a government building. building. Yeah. You can tell only boring shit happens there. Yeah. But like, you could shoot a movie there. It is gorgeous. It's the gorgeous. architecture is just like amazing. Yeah. All right. So, The Impossible 3 is going. Welcome, Maria. To, Welcome. To El Museo de Art Slice. So listeners, that is going to do it for us today. The feature music today was I Hate Him So Much by Anonymous 420, which is one of hundreds of incredible songs that Rose from Loyalty Freak Music has made. Hello, I'm Rose. I run the website Loyalty Freak Music, where I put all the compositions I do under Creative Commons Zero License. I produce under several nicknames, each one with a particular approach to music. And if I can help destroy a bit the capitalist system by that means, I'll do it. I've released more than 2,500 songs I give for free under those licenses during the last 10 years and have a little community using and remixing those tunes into a lot of different media. My music lives in those new works and that makes me really happy. So we're supporters and we hope you all can support Rose's mission. We will link them in the show notes. Thank you to A.P. Leslie for reading Marcel Duchamp's love letters to Maria. Check out his great book of poetry, Knees Turned Velvet. Thank you to our Brazilian Art Slice correspondent, Anne, for helping us translate some articles and documentaries. And finally, thank you to Jonathan de Acevedo for reading Maria Martins' quote. My name is Jonathan de Acevedo, and thank you so much for listening to Art Slice podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. Muito obrigado a Madame Carlos também por sua arte. O Brasil e o mundo te agradece. You can find Jonathan in Free Guy starring Ryan Reynolds. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Don't forget to share the show with a friend. Leave a five-star written review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know what you thought about the work and join us on Patreon. And no. And no. Your kid could not have painted that. Bye. Bye. Andrew, 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 Andrew,